Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 16. We are all the way to the 16th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. It's still going to take us a while to reach the end, but at least we're making progress. After the very short chapter in chapter 15, chapter 16 is one of the longest chapters in the book. We'll try to cover the whole thing tonight because it is a large parable from God to once again describe Israel's natural state and particularly Jerusalem's natural state, aiming at Jerusalem for her abominations. And he's going to make reference to the two sisters of Jerusalem, one to the south, Sodom, and one to the north, and the northern tribes and Sodom have already committed so many crimes against God that God holds Jerusalem even more guilty for the fact that they've witnessed how God has dealt with pouring out his judgment on the rebellion of Samaria and Sodom. And yet, having seen God be a righteous judge, they nevertheless continued on in their abominations. So God wants to really demonstrate how genuinely heinous the crime of Jerusalem is. So this chapter does have some of the most graphic language that you're going to find in the Old Testament. Just recognize that God is demonstrating how terrible the crime of Jerusalem in their idolatry and in their ways of chasing after the religions and the idols of the surrounding nations, just really how terrible it is. These descendants of Abraham and Sarah are going to be told, your father's an Amorite and your mother's a Hittite. It's God saying, you're not acting like the children of Abraham. You're acting like the nations that were in Canaan to begin with. You're acting like the nations that I did not enter into covenant with. You're acting like the nations that I did not choose as my special people. You're acting just like the rest of the world. So God is going to lay out his parable in front of them, and he's going to start by saying, you began as an unwanted child. The minute you were born, your umbilical cord was not even cut. You were just cast into a field in your blood. That's where I found you. And so he's trying to tell them that they are utterly and completely dependent on him. Everything they are, the very fact that they're alive, everything that they have, the way that God brought them into the land of milk and honey, the way he's protected them and dressed them, clothed them, fed them every day. He said, that is my doing, and yet you took these gifts that I gave you, and you've shared it with all your illicit lovers. And then he's even going to go so far as to say, you're not like a typical harlot. Most harlots do it for money. You do it and give away my stuff that I gave you. You give gifts to your lovers. That's how badly you want to commit this ongoing harlotry with the surrounding nations around you. 
So God is really laying out his case. And by the end of the chapter, just about the time that you would say, man, God is angry at these people. God is using harsh language, and he talks about bringing on them the blood of wrath and jealousy. God is really furious at them. And then in verse 60, he says, nevertheless, I'm going to remember my covenant with you, the covenant from the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you because God, once again, is going to demonstrate his faithfulness to his own word. And even though these people have sinned against God in ugly, heinous, repetitive ways, because he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to keep them as his people. Not by the original covenant, not by the Sinai covenant. He's going to have to form a new covenant with them. And that idea of an everlasting new covenant is introduced right on the heels of, I found you in your blood, and then when you grew up and I clothed you and fed you, you committed harlotries with your lovers. And just about the time that you would think, well, God must be done with them, God turns and says, but I'll be faithful to you. Which is remarkable again, especially for anybody who happens to be like, oh, me, who knows really how sinful you are, who knows, I know the places I've been, I know the things I've done, I know the stuff that I really hope that God never brings up. It's so good to see him be this faithful to national Israel despite their terrible sin because he made an everlasting covenant through the blood of his son rather than through the blood of goats and bulls and birds and animals. He's going to make a covenant based on his own word, his own faithfulness, and save people through that covenant. And that is the very, very good news of the gospel. And so you can find very, very good news even in the midst of Ezekiel 16, which is full of very, very bad news. Thus endeth the introduction. Chapter 16, verse 1. I'm going to read big sections of this because it doesn't take a great deal of explanation. God's just laying out his case against Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Now, that's historically true, by the way. Jerusalem already existed in the land of Canaan before the Israelites got there. All the way back at Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, you see that he was the king of Shalom, the king of Salem. There is some indication that that may have even been a reference to the Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem has been around for a very, very long time. And so he can say, your origin and your birth, Jerusalem, are from the land of the Canaanite. But your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No, I looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you. 
to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field, for you were abhorred from the day you were born. So that's the original state that God found them in. If you uh, believe in total depravity, this would be a good indication of it. God is saying that when he found Jerusalem, when he found the Israelites, the Jews in Jerusalem, he did not find them to be the good ones. He didn't find them to be the righteous or the holy ones. He found them to be bloody, unwanted, just born, dying in a field baby. So they did not have any theological knowledge. They did not have any righteous knowledge. They did not have any holiness about themselves that would attract anybody. So what does God do? When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. God repeats that twice. He wants them to understand that the only reason they're alive, the only reason they know their own name, the only reason they survive to this day is because God was the one who said to them, live. Now, I have heard preacher after preacher, commentator after commentator, take that verse out of its natural context and say to Christian people that the only reason you live today is because God found you in your blood and said to you, live. Now, I think that's a, a nice lesson, but it's, it's really not the context. The context is all about God saying to Jerusalem, live. And if you change the context so that you make that verse about the church, then when you get to the end, when you get to like verse 60, and God remembers the covenant that he made with them, you're going to start thinking that God's remembering some covenant he made with the church and then making an everlasting covenant with them. But it's really, really important in your Israelology to understand who Ezekiel is speaking to all the way through this chapter, because when God says to Jerusalem live, it is also Jerusalem who he's going to form an everlasting covenant with. So much so that when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, chapter 22, a city comes down out of heaven called New Jerusalem. Because God is not forgetting the promises and the covenants he has made to Jerusalem. So even though I understand the desire to want to make this applicable to us and to say that the reason we live is because God said that we'll live, and that's absolutely true. I agree theologically that it is God who spoke to us and said live. Great. That's why we're alive. But... Don't take verse 6 out of its natural context or else you're going to end up with a faulty conclusion by the end of the chapter. Be consistent. So I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, you became tall, and you reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. So how does Yahweh see the Sinai covenant? As far as he's concerned, once he entered into that covenant with Israel, they belonged to him. 
They're his from that point forward. He is in covenant with them, and they are to be faithful to him, which is why he started out with, you'll have no other gods before me. I'm the only God you're going to have. And the second is, don't make graven images. Don't bow down and worship them. You belong to me. So since Israel belongs to God, God could expect fidelity from them. But he didn't get it. Verse 9, then I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you. I anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and I covered you with silk. The idea being, I didn't just put rags on you. I dressed you in finery. I adorned you with ornaments, says verse 11. I put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. At one point, Jerusalem was the very center of political power in the Middle East. When David and Solomon were on the throne, kings came from afar. So even the Queen of Sheba came and stood before Solomon and said, I heard about you, but now that I see it, the half wasn't told me. So God could say rightly that you had fine flour, honey, oil, you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. That's what God did, made them rulers on the planet, made Jerusalem the very seat of power in the Middle East. And then your fame went forth among the Gentiles, among the nations, on account of your beauty. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Again, God takes it personally. You were beautiful. You were well-dressed. You were well-fed. For what reason? Because I bestowed all those things on you because you belong to me. But, verse 15 but you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. We see this consistently with the prophets where they refer to the unfaithfulness of Jerusalem as harlotry. Now, God knows every human relationship. He could have picked any other relationship. He could have said that Jerusalem was his distant second cousin, and that they stub their toe. But that's not the relationship that God chose so that people would understand how truly horrible their crime was. Instead, he makes them out to be a wife to him. They belong to him, and then she's an unfaithful wife, very much like God again and again through so many of the prophets, like God telling... Like God telling Hosea, thank you for jumping into my brain, but yes. Like God telling Hosea to go and marry a prostitute so that the people would understand how God viewed Israel in their unfaithfulness, in their idolatry, that God sees it as an unfaithful wife. And any of you guys in this room who have or have had a wife, can you think of anything 
that would break the relationship faster than finding out that your wife is not just unfaithful once, but acting like a harlot. When you find that out, there's going to be a long talk. And it's going to end with a lot of yelling. And people are going to be angry. There's just no way to smooth that over and say, oh, you're a harlot, honey? That's nice. What's for dinner? There's no way to move past that. You've got to, you've got to see that God is choosing the most intimate relationship, the marriage of the man and the woman, and then he's picking the thing that breaks the relationship, the unfaithfulness, the fornication, the harlotry. But you trusted in your beauty as opposed to trusting God, and you played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. So you're not just a harlot, but it's like nonstop because God sees them interacting with all the surrounding nations who God has told them from the beginning not to worship their gods, not to intermarry with them because the women of those foreign nations will take the men of Israel away to their foreign gods, to their kind of worship. God was very clear at the beginning, don't become unfaithful. Don't run around with these foreign nations. And because they didn't just do it once, but with many of the nations, God said that your harlotries were on every passerby who might be willing. And you took some of your clothes and you made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. He's talking about the altars and the groves and the high places that were formed for all the foreign gods. He says, here, I gave you riches. I gave you gold and silver. I gave you clothing. I took care of you with silk and embroidered, and embroidered cloth. And what did you do with it? You end up making high places to foreign gods, and because they went and worshipped there, God likens it to harlotry. That's where you displayed your harlotry. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and my silver, which I had given to you, and you made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. I kind of chuckle at the idea that they would make idols, basically statues of gold and silver, and then they would feel that it was necessary to clothe them. Mm. Have you gone by the Buddhist temple on Old Nashville Highway during the winter at all? There's the statue of Buddha out front. Go look at it sometime when the weather gets cold. And Buddha's got the four faces facing all four ways. And during the winter, they cover it with scarves. They put scarves around the four necks, and they deck it out with, with clothing to keep the Buddha warm. It's a statue. People are insane. People are crazy. And God's calling the Israelites out for it and saying, not only did you make statues out of the gold and silver that I gave you, but then you took the clothes that I gave you to cover you, and you're covering foreign gods that are made with your own hands. They can't walk. They can't talk. They can't think. You have to carry them around. But, oh, they're well-dressed. <laughs> also, my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. 
So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? One of the things that God was very clear about when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt was that they were not to send their children through the fire. You see sometimes the name Molech in the Old Testament. Molech was a, a metal god with outstretched hands, with a furnace in his belly. And they would stoke the furnace until the metal god became red hot. And then they would lay their children in the red hot hands of Molech and they believed that Molech was being appeased by the cries and the screams of their children as they burned. And God says, these are my children. These are children you bore to me. And you burned them to Molech, to a foreign god. Which is why he can ask the question, were your harlotries so small a matter? It's a huge matter. You're sacrificing children, you're taking everything that I've given you, and you're using it to worship foreign gods. You slaughtered my children, and you offer them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Verse 22, and besides all your abominations and your harlotries, that would have been enough. You did not remember the days of your youth. When you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. You don't remember where you were when I found you. You don't appreciate the fact that you were nothing. You were an unwanted child. You were abandoned in your blood. Your umbilical cord's not even cut. You haven't been clothed. You haven't been salted. You're just laying there in a field squirming and dying in your blood. When I found you. And then I gave you everything. Food and clothes. I made you royalty. I gave you a kingdom. I did all of that for you. And then you commit your harlotries and you don't even remember what you were when I found you. Then it came about. After all your wickedness. Woe. Woe to you, declares the Lord God. That you built yourselves a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and you made your beauty abominable and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold now, I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations, which is true. Now that they're going into the Babylonian captivity, now they don't have all the finery. Now they don't have all the clothes and the jewels. Now they don't even have the food that they used to have. And God takes credit for it. He says, I did this to you. I'm limiting your rations on purpose because you did not stay faithful to me. And I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. When the Philistines think that you're being a tad lewd, <laughs> you know that you're, you're really, really pushing the boundaries. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You even played the harlot with them, 
and still were not satisfied. Verse 29, you also multiplied your harlotries with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart. In other words, he's saying, no matter how many lovers you take, you're never satisfied. How languishing is your heart that it would keep looking for new lovers, declares the Lord your God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square, in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus, you are different from those women in your harlotries, in that no one plays the harlot like you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus, you are different. Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Has God pretty much laid out his case now? I mean, they have to understand why they're being punished at this point. Because they have taken everything God has given them. They have forgotten what state they were in when God found them. And they have wasted the plenty of God on the idols of the foreign nations. And on top of that, by giving it all away, they have made themselves distinct from all harlots. So thus says the Lord O harlot, hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord God, because of your lewdness, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I shall gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I shall gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may all see your nakedness. Now, by the way, that's what happened. God stopped protecting Jerusalem and the enemies of Israel came down on them and the Israelites are being deported out of Jerusalem in waves at this point and God likens that to demonstrating that they're just fully naked now in their shame. Verse 38, thus I shall judge you like a woman who commits adultery or sheds blood are judged. Thus I shall judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. And I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I shall also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I shall stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. 
so I shall calm my fury against you. My jealousy will depart from you, and I shall be pacified and angry no more. What does that demonstrate to you? What does that show you theologically? That God's judgment, God's righteousness must be satisfied. God is not able to just wink at this. God is not able to say, well, that's too bad. You did that, but, well, I forgive you. His justice, his righteousness must be satisfied. His holiness demands that justice is doled out. And this, again, is why Christianity is such very, very good news. Because the same righteous judgment of God that's being poured out on Israel is the righteous judgment that every one of us deserve. Every one of us should be under the wrath of God, the blood of wrath and jealousy. God describes his own anger as the blood of wrath and jealousy. That's what we deserve because every single one of us forgot where we were when God came to get us. Every single one of us was found by God and he did tell us live and he did elect us and he did call us and he did bring us to himself and he did do all those things for us. And that means that Paul can rightly say that we are not appointed to wrath. And isn't that very, very good news? God's wrath must be satisfied somewhere, but we're not appointed to wrath. So where did that wrath go? God, again, didn't just wink at it. He took out that wrath on his son as our substitute. The wrath of God is satisfied And God is completely just then in justifying the ungodly because the wrath has been satisfied. But notice how the wrath of God is satisfied. He says, I will calm my fury against you. My jealousy will depart from you and I shall be pacified and angry no more. There's simply nothing you can do to pacify God. There's nothing you can do that will calm his fury. He has to do it. And so he did it in Christ. Or he's going to do it the exact way he did it here to Jerusalem by pouring out his wrath on them and bringing about bloodshed and sword and famine and pestilence. And so he'll calm his fury. Verse 43, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, like mother, like daughter. I've heard that phrase all my life. Like father, like son. It's a biblical phrase. That's where it comes from. It's not Shakespeare. It's not Ben Franklin. It's not a cute adage. It comes from the Bible. And God says that everyone who quotes Proverbs is going to speak this way of Jerusalem. They're going to say, like mother, like daughter. Now, what does he mean by that? He's going to explain it. He's going to say, your mother was a Hittite, and that's what you're like. Then he's going to mention the two sisters, Samaria and Sodom. What happened to Sodom? They were utterly destroyed. What happened to Samaria? They were taken out of their land, 
and have never returned to this very day. So God has demonstrated his punishment on Samaria and on Sodom, and yet Jerusalem didn't turn from their erring ways and their harlotries. So God holds them even more responsible, so there's going to be a proverb about them that mocks them over the fact that they are now worse than the Hittites, the Sodomites, and the Sumerians. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter, you are the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you, and her daughters. And your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom, with her daughters. And yet you have not merely walked in their ways, or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they did. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but they did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty, and they committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus, you have made your sisters, Sodom and Samaria, appear righteous by your abominations, which you have committed. So comparatively, they are so much better that they actually give comfort to Sodom. That's how God views the crime of Jerusalem. Verse 52, also bear your disgrace in that you have made judgment favorable for your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. Yes, be also ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you made your sisters appear righteous. Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them, your own company, in order that you may bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done when you have become a consolation to them. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters, will return to their former state. And you with your daughters will also return to your former state. As the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in your day of pride. In other words, when Jerusalem was at its zenith, when it was doing great, he said, you never mentioned Sodom. You didn't talk about Sodom. It's been destroyed. It's gone. It's off the map. As the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in the day of pride before your wickedness was uncovered. So now you have become the reproach of the daughters of Edom. The Edomites 
sworn enemies of the Israelites, and he's now saying, I'm going to so take you out of your land. I'm going to so destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to so take you into the land of the Chaldees. You're going to be overruled by the Babylons that your sworn enemies, the Philistines and the Edomites, aren't even going to mention you anymore. They're not even going to think about you anymore. You're just going to be a byword and a proverb. The daughters of Eden and all those around her of the daughters of the Philistines, those surrounding you who despise you. You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, the Lord declares. In other words, everything that's happening to you is right, is fair. This is a just punishment. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Okay, now we have to talk real quick before we get to verse 60, and then we'll be able to close up the night. I have been saying for years and years and years, and I hope it's sunk into your head, that there are conditional and unconditional covenants in the Bible. The covenant at Mount Sinai was a very conditional covenant. God would keep the covenant with them, give them the land, take care of their enemies, give them the land of milk and honey, multiply their numbers, and keep them in the land if, in fact, they would keep the covenant. But if they broke the covenant, which God knew they were going to do, he was going to punish them and punish them severely. That's what's happening here. God's been faithful to his word. He said he was going to do it. Because it was a conditional covenant, and they broke the conditions of the covenant, God can no longer go back to that broken covenant in order to restore the relationship with Israel because that covenant has been broken, which is why Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant. And God says, not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. And then he specifies it, which covenant they broke. So he can't take them back to that covenant to restore the relationship. And yet, he's made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that promise, and because of the promise of the kingdom given to David, God, who is faithful, cannot turn back away from his promises. So he has to restore Israel. How is he going to restore Israel? He can't restore them by the Sinai covenant, a conditional covenant that they broke. So what is he going to do? He promises them a new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, and that's the rest of this chapter, where God says, now I'm going to make an unconditional, everlasting kind of covenant. I'm going to make a covenant that is based completely on the finished work of Christ in order to accomplish all the promises that I have ever made to the forefathers. And that's why I'm so convinced, so utterly convinced, that there has to be a future for Israel. There has to be a kingdom. The prayer of Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, has to come true, or Jesus wouldn't say to pray about it. The kingdom of David has to happen. The fallen kingdom of David has to be restored, and all the Gentile nations have to flow to it. Otherwise, what are you going to do with Zechariah? And Zechariah's promises that the surrounding nations are going to keep the feast once a year and they're going to come up to Jerusalem or God's going to punish them if they don't. What are you going to do with those kind of prophecies if there is not a kingdom and a restoration of Israel coming? And the only way to restore them is via the new covenant. Why did I go through that whole exercise? Because that new covenant is made specifically, Jeremiah 31 says it, 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God delineates the northern and the southern tribes. That's who he's going to form the new covenant with. Okay, so having put all that out, Micah, how are you saved? In what covenant? New covenant. The new covenant. How did you get in? Gentiles were grafted in. We were adopted in. Grace, grace, grace. Mm -hmm. We don't have any of this history. We don't have these promises. We don't have these forefathers. We don't have these covenants. Talk about grace. God, who is under no obligation to you whatsoever, formed a new covenant with Judah and Israel and then adopted you into the family so that you too could have everlasting consolation before the throne of God based on nothing. That's why we talk about unconditional election. Yes, that's a, a very reformed concept, but it's also a very biblical concept that God elects people based on no other condition than his grace and he prepared the way for you to be brought into covenant with him by forming this everlasting covenant he's about to talk about. So here's the application part. From verse 60 forward, if God didn't come to this conclusion, there's no salvation for Josiah. You're in this covenant that he is now promising Israel and Judah. And that's remarkable. Did I put enough emphasis on that word? That's remarkable. Nevertheless, which is an astounding word after you read everything we just read. In the previous chapter, he says you're like a vine that's worthless and burned. I mean, there's nothing to Israel of any value. And he says you're nothing but a baby in its blood, uncut in a field. Nothing of value. Nevertheless, even though you've sinned against me and you've chased your foreign gods and you've committed your abominations and your lewdness and your harlotries, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. When was that? Back at Mount Sinai. I'm going to remember that covenant. And then, because you've broken it, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of, the next words are, your covenant. That Sinai covenant, that one that you were in with me, that's not the one that I'm going to restore you by. That's not the one that I'm going to bring you back to your land and form a kingdom again for you. That's not the covenant that's going to do it. It has to be the everlasting covenant that does it. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you. Not by your covenant. You can't do it. You broke it. You can't keep the covenant from Sinai. You can't keep the law. You can't be good enough. There's no way that you can assuage the judgment, the blood of wrath and jealousy. There's no way you can do it. So God has to do it all by himself. Thus, he's going to establish a new covenant. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
in order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have, I love the next word, when I have forgiven you for all that you have done. Anybody here got like an all you have done in your head somewhere? I certainly do. I've got an all you have done that plagues me, wakes me up at night and says, how can God love somebody like you? And here God says, because of this everlasting covenant, because of this reformation of a different covenant, not the covenant of you, but the covenant that he's going to make with himself and then bring you in by his grace and his kindness so that you will know that he is the Lord, then he's going to forgive you like he forgives Israel. This scripture makes it a little more plain. never never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide an atonement for you all. When I provide an atonement for you all. And that atonement is God himself. And that atonement is Christ. Absolutely. And do you think God was satisfied with that atonement? Yeah, utterly and completely. So then God can, his judgment being righteously poured out on Christ, so that his anger is abated, so that we can stand before him and not be appointed to wrath, so then God can rightly and righteously and justly justify us and call us holy because he has taken the righteousness of Christ and imputed it to our account so that we stand before him without spot or blemish because he has forgiven our sin. We love that. We love that theology. That's everything we're counting on. Don't forget that that's Israel's promise. We're just brought into it by grace. Israel's promise is God is going to restore them and forgive them for all they have done. Thus says the Lord God. They'll see what a terrible price God had to pay They're going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. Yeah, they're going to get the new heart of flesh when he takes out their heart of stone, when the spirit of God is finally in them and they are going to recognize Christ who they pierced and they're going to weep over him. Yeah, they're going to be ashamed and yet God is going to forgive them and restore them and build them up once again into a kingdom in the Middle East and the surrounding nations are going to flow to them. Uh, The common argument that I've heard over and over and over again from way too many preachers is that the reason that God is done with Israel, the reason that God isn't going to restore the kingdom of Israel, the reason that God now is going to accomplish those things through the church in some allegorical or symbolic way so that they protect God's reputation, but it doesn't actually happen within the confines of Israel. The reasoning that everybody seems to give is, well, they broke the covenant. God gave them a covenant and said, do it, and they didn't do it. So God's done with Israel. But time and time again, we see things like we saw tonight, where God says, yes, you broke it. You absolutely broke it. But there's a solution. That's not the end of the story. It doesn't stop at you broke the covenant. It goes on to, but God is faithful, and God's going to form a new covenant, and he's forming that covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, 
and via that covenant, he's going to restore Israel, and we all get to be participant in the good grace of God, pouring out his wrath on his son in order to redeem himself a people, but we enter that by grace. We're not owed it. That's why Paul would argue in Romans 11, don't be boasting against the natural branches. Don't be boasting like he cut them off for you. Yes, Paul says, yeah, but if he cut them off, he can also graft them back in. And he's going to. And when the times of the Gentiles are over, after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, Paul says, then all Israel's going to be saved. So it's consistent Old or New Testament. God is faithful in everything he's ever said and the things he says through his prophets about the restoration of Israel have to be true or else I have absolutely no confidence in my own salvation because if God can make those kind of promises to those people and not perform it, then I have no confidence that he'll perform it for me. I need Israel to be restored. I need God to be faithful. I need God to be forgiving because of the new covenant in Christ. Right? You're all with me? Well, all right then. You sound so enthusiastic, but I'm glad you're with me. The uh, ESV, uh, verse 63, the last one that ends there, it translates it after this, they will remember and be confounded. They'll just be amazed by this. They will believe that, that God would pay such a terrible price for this. Yeah, absolutely. Seems, you talked about Romans 11. That's how Paul ends Romans 11. Like when that small comes in, you know, how amazing is God's grace that he, his gifts are without repentance. And then he goes, talks about, you know, oh, the depth and riches of, of both his wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, unsearchable are his riches. I mean, it's coming off of that. Like, that yeah. will be the full demonstration yes. of his grace and, and his mercy. And, and they're going to be just be... So I imagine how amazed we are with our grace, how much more they will be after they see the full restoration nationally. That's right. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. I mean, that's Paul at the end of looking at what God's doing with Israel and how he's brought Gentiles in to make Israel jealous. So it's consistent theology. I keep arguing, older New Testament, it all fits together. It all says one thing. And as soon as you start doing Israel church replacement or any version of that, suddenly the Bible becomes a closed book. But if you let it say what it says, it all fits together perfectly. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.